0: And now, coming to you live from the awkward gap between now and Worldcon,
1: it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on The Coochie Podcast! Which is now renamed The Awkward Gap. <laughs> awkward Gap Podcast. That pretty much covers a lot of what we do. <laughs> well,
0: it kind of is. I mean, here we are on the 19th of July, right, when, when we're recording, and I know that for most people, Worldcon is still just on a month away. Mm-hmm. But certainly for me, in two weeks I'm on a plane. And I don't I mean you're not that much far behind me, I know. No. And all of the thoughts really are about where are we going, who are we gonna see, what are the social plans? You know, we've just got our final draft programs from the convention. So right. we'll, we'll be able to start publicising where we'll be. And in fact maybe you and I will both put up a joint schedule on the Kood Street website so people can find us if they want to. That would be a good idea.
1: Yeah. I don't feel overprogrammed at all, although one of the problems with any Worldcon, and this one in particular, uh, is size. Uh, not only the size of the membership, which may be some kind of a record this year, almost certainly a record for a non-North American. No, 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 uh, no.
0: Gary, I'm going to interrupt right there. It is the biggest Worldcon of all time already.
1: Already? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's the biggest Worldcon of all time. And the biggest building of all time, from what I hear from my friends. <laughs> <questions. laughs> So finding people is going to be one of those things where, well, they're somewhere in in these in these ten hectares of meeting space. They're there somewhere. That's right. So it's it's, it's always a problem to make connections with friends at a giant venue that's like right. that. I don't know how people who go to Comic Con do it.
0: M- uh, my plan is just to inject everybody I meet with RFID chips so that I can track them down later.
1: Oh, that's 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 about as geeky as you can get. To- <laughs>
0: <laughs> or I guess we could use Find My Friends on iPhones and stuff.
1: I think that's one of the things that we all will probably be doing is uh, saying, I, I, I think I can see you now just over the horizon.
0: Either there have got 9,000 people sitting all alone in separate uh, eating establishments going, I couldn't find anybody I wanted to
1: see. Oh. I, well. <laughs> but one of the things I like about going to conventions in general is not is, uh, one of the main reasons I go is to see all old friends. One of the main pleasures <coughs> is always hanging out and having dinner or lunch or breakfast or just the time in the bar with somebody I've never met before or somebody I've spoken to only in passing. Yes. Uh, and that, that this almost always happens, and it's yes. almost always a delight. Yes. I mean, uh, unless, uh, every reason why you meet somebody that you thought you would like, and it turns out they're really awful, or it turns out that maybe you're really awful to them. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I, I try not to be really awful to anybody, Gary. I, I
1: mean, really you never do. Can tell.
0: I know what you mean, but I do try. And I mean, yes, I look yeah. back over the years at the World Cons and the World Fantasy conventions that I've gone to particularly, but any convention it's true for. You find yourself at some odd moment suddenly having a delightful conversation with someone you've never met before um, mm. and who, you know, hopefully with a little bit of luck become lifelong friends.
1: And and, and, and you learn to sort of share experiences in a way that only happened at conventions. I was at ReaderCon last week, as you well know, and... The last day of the convention was Sunday, and for various scheduling reasons, my plane didn't leave until 8 p.m., and the convention was basically over in the morning. Um, or the Shirley Jackson Awards were given out at 11 o'clock or noon or something. And then so it was a matter of sitting around, and it turns out that was the afternoon of the World Cup final. Okay. So, uh, so my friend Stacy and I repaired to the bar. And uh, there was a group of people, including Sophia Sa- Sanitar. Now, we had made no plans to spend time with S- Sophia at this con. But suddenly, we're all sitting there in a bar room looking at a giant screen television set and, uh, and cheering on... Turns out most of us were cheering on Germany. <laughs> uh, only because several people at the table had friends in Germany. Okay. Well, you've got to cheer for somebody. I guess so. Um, and... Uh, if we'd had friends in Argentina, we would have been there's, there, there. There's a point at which the World Cup becomes, for me, an aesthetic experience. Yeah. It's a what what you call it, you, I assume you call it football in Australia. Soccer. Oh, you call it soccer? Like so? Australians and Americans are the only ones who call it soccer? I don't know that we're the only ones,
0: but certainly we do typically call it soccer. I mean, if only because we have our own major game that's called football. Mm. But we don't call what you call foot, what you play football either.
1: So you have English foot, what we would call, as a rugby or English football. Okay, no, no, no. Football. Uh,
0: we've got Australian rules football, which is football. This is so yeah. off the topic for this podcast. There's soccer, which is well football, which is soccer. There's football, which is gridiron, which is NFL or American football. Right. And then there's uh, you know rugby, which is rugby.
1: Right. This is not to- totally irrelevant to uh, to the topic of our podcast since it gives me a chance to plug an anthology coming out from a friend, an old friend of mine from both ICFA and, and ReaderCon, Rick Wilbur, who's doing, has done, has put together the first, what I think is the first anthology of fantasy, science fiction, and horror stories dealing with baseball.
0: Yeah, it might I be the first solo baseball crazy- one.
1: There was a there was an anthology which probably involved martin greenberg called baseball 3000 or something like that but that was all science fiction okay <laughs> this, this is any kind of non-realistic fiction and it's uh it, it, it comes back to an issue which um we may have mentioned once or twice on the podcast before it comes up with americans more than anybody else that the number of fantasy and science fiction stories written about baseball at least in the united states outnumbers all other sports combined
0: it probably outnumbers all other sports combined period because i can't think of any other sport that has such a deliberate
1: clear self-mythologizing to it i think that's a very good way of putting it and it's also a sport which is novelistic in structure in the Mm. sense that it doesn't have a clock it's the only sport without a clock it goes on as long as it needs to just like a novel does um it doesn't have any restrictions in space or time. This was all pointed out to me by a very good American sports writer named Roger Kahn, who I don't know if he's still alive or not. He was on a radio show I did years ago. Baseball can theoretically go on to infinity. Yeah. It doesn't ever have to stop. If there's a tie at the end of 18 innings, it goes to 19 innings, even though it's a nine inning game. And it turns out that the field defined in baseball is not defined in militaristic grids, as in most sports. But it's defined by essentially where you decide to build the outfield stands. In other words, the foul line in baseball, by definition, I gather, extends to infinity. It only stops when you build a stadium out there somewhere for it to stop. <laughs> yes. So, so, and, and, and the third, the third thing which people pointed out, although this could be said uh, of cricket as well, is that it's a character versus character sport. Yeah. It is pitcher versus a batter. It's a batter versus a a fielder, and so forth and so on. So every every important interaction is two characters contesting, which is again a novelistic kind of structure.
0: Almost all of these things are shared with cricket, but the the Commonwealth countries tend not to be quite so overtly self-mythologizing about it.
1: You know, I think that's probably true.
0: and the, the, there's a something about the way North Americans approach baseball in the media. You know, when they come to telling stories that it. It just seems to give them something clear and simple to build things around in terms of story that whilst there have been novels and short stories based around, say for cricket, for example, there's not a a large number of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not quite as dominating or as clear. I don't know particularly why, because I mean, certainly for example, I mean, again, way off topic. um, Cricket used to share the timeless aspect to it as well. Before they mm-hmm. reached the point where they finally went, well, no, we can't practically do this because they were getting games that went on for two weeks. For days, days and days and days. Yes, I mean cool. you've already got games that go on for five days already. So when you've got a game that can go on for well, I think ten or twelve or fourteen days, then it really becomes an issue, and you need to put a, put a stop to that. Mm-hmm. So you know. But anyway, you were at Ritacon I'm going to How drag this back to the subject. Back to the subject. Yeah. ReaderCon, you're enjoying that brief temporary community that only exists for four days a year at ReaderCon. Just as we will with Worldcon that only exists for five days a year. And those friends who you, you've known them for 10 years, but it's really just 45 days because that's the only time you're together.
1: A very good Very good way of looking at it. There is a kind of Brigadoon mm-hmm. aspect thing, where it's a community that exists one day a year.
0: Yes, I was in touch with a friend who was saying, are you going to be at World Fantasy this year? And I said, tragically, sadly, lamentably no. And, and it's like immediately like, oh, well, then we'll see you in Saratoga next year because the next unit of time
1: is 12 months away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you occasionally run into people who uh, seem to live in that alternate time zone. I'm not going to name anybody, but they're and this is not a critical remark at all. But there are people I see only at conventions who will pick up the conversation exactly to the to the sentence from the previous conversation we had a year ago, and and, and carry on in this sort of um, alternate you know space that we're in, uh, and 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 those friends are really wonderful. I like to see them, and and you get this odd sort of time warp sense that i You're absolutely right. I've met this person for a total of maybe 40 or 50 hours during our lives. But during that 40 or 50 hours, they've gotten old and grey. <laughs>
0: yes. And, and the truth is, I mean, Brigadoon is a great analogy for it because as far as you're concerned, they may fade back into the mist with the building that the convention was held in. You've got no
1: idea they've got a real life outside that environment at all. Do you ever have this sense, well, you probably wouldn't in Perth being far away from anywhere else, but occasionally occasionally i will be on the street actually usually not in chicago but somewhere for some unrelated meeting or convention or something and i'll run into somebody that i know from a convention and it's like there's this sort of jarring sense of unreality <laughs> like you shifted reality frames yes. and, wait a minute you're not supposed to be here you're <laughs> supposed to be back at that hotel six months ago
0: yes and almost like am i supposed to talk to you um yeah, I said, um uh uh, hi, uh, wh- which part of my life do I now connect you to? Uh, oh. Yeah, it is a bit weird. But it's great. I mean, I love conventions. I have to say, there's an important thing about ReaderCon we haven't mentioned yet. Because you've just completed ReaderCon 25, which was, from from all accounts,
1: a success, I think? It was a successful ReaderCon. It was, the hotel has been redone. It's much more enjoyable than it was last year. The community is very much a community that defines itself. Uh, it's almost as though people are cast in certain roles. There are this this is a convention which sort of conceptually um, is built around figures like Samuel R. Delaney and John Crowley and John Clute and now Peter Straub has been one of the regulars. But there also is a contingent of hard SF writers, uh, Alan Steele, uh, who don't seem part of that sort of main thing, but they with, it wouldn't be the same convention without them. Mm. And there are younger writers like Veronica Shanos, for example, or Sofia Samatar, um, who, who who sort of you know indicate that there's a constant process of redefining the community, but it's always a community. Yeah, uh, the thing about conventions that I like, and this happens at the Best World Fantasies, and it happens fairly regularly at ReaderCon. Is that I don't get a sense there are outsider groups. I don't get a sense there are people who aren't welcome, um, yeah. or who are, are going to be excluded from a conversation at the bar. I didn't, I didn't see either one of them this year, uh, but both Lev Grossman and uh, Juno Diaz showed up and apparently just had a wonderful time talking with the same groups of people we all talk about, and um, and you could always unexpectedly find yourself in a conversation with somebody like that. The only time I met. The only times I've met Juno Diaz has, has been at ReaderCon, mm-hmm. um, and it was completely unexpected both times. Yeah, Michael Gerda is another sort of uh, core figure at ReaderCon these days, and and, and so so uh, Kit Reed was guest of honor, Andrea Harrison was guest of honor, and she brought in kind of a, a a a new dimension, even though she's also an academic and a college professor. So there's there's this sense that, and I may be completely misreading this because of being in possibly some sort of inside group. I, I, I just get a sense that all these communities are willing to talk to each other rather than to isolate each other, uh, which which is sometimes quite different from what a giant world con is, where a giant world con seems like six or seven or eight or 12 miniature cons of affinity groups.
0: I think there's a completely different approach to the two events, honestly. Um, I think – a reader con world fantasy cons type of event. And I imagine they're about the same scale, roughly. Mm. Um, yeah. you go there and it takes you a couple of years to get into, into the groups that are there. And then you get to know everybody who's going pretty much. They become familiar to you at least on site. You have groups of yeah. friends, that kind of thing. And it'll take a couple of years. I'll bet. You know, I talk to people who come from Australia to world fantasy now and it, inevitably their first convention was a little bit alienating Maybe the second one was all right. And by the fourth one, they're having the time of their lives because they know everybody. Exactly. For World
1: Con, you need to go with your people. I think that's true. I, and, which, which to some extent may be the same people you see at a smaller con. Yeah. One way of identifying a con community to me is if when you go to a con and you notice the people who aren't there. Yeah. Uh, you notice at, 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 World, at, at, at ReaderCon this year. I was not the only one who commented on the fact that Jeff Ford couldn't make it. Yeah. Jeff Ford has been one of the people who has defined that for those of us who have been going there for years. Yeah. Um, uh, at a WorldCon, if somebody doesn't show up, you're not surprised uh, necessarily.
0: Yeah. Uh, because, because well, so it's I don't not even it's, know. I mean, I think at a WorldCon you don't even notice. You don't even notice. Yeah. I mean, there'd be a few prominent figures you would notice. You know, if, I mean, to me, if Robert Silverberg wasn't there, it would be odd. Because he's always at Worldcon and he's been there for 50 years or something. Uh, and then there are people like Kyle, what's his name? David Kyle, mm-hmm. who t- you know totters out every year, looking at about eight years older every year, wearing his bright red jacket and then presenting the Big Hard Award
1: and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. David, by the way, was at ReaderCon this year. Yeah. Probably looking at about 140. Oh, I think. But that uh, he a good hundred and forty. Oh, great, a hundred and forty. But you great know, he's he's got he's one of those people that I've never had long conversations with him. But I think he actually is ninety five or something. But his memory is something that we all ought to be paying attention to, and that's one of the things that I keep thinking as I approach the age of people who actually have memories. But I keep thinking we need to talk to the Barry Malzbergs, we need to talk to the Dave Kyles, we need to talk to the Bob Silverbergs, partly because. There's a kind of folklore, there's a kind of folk wisdom that gets passed on. And by folk wisdom, I don't necessarily mean critical or cultural attitudes about science fiction. I simply mean the stories, the, yeah. the human element. Well, I mean,
0: A good friend of this podcast, Jonathan McElmont, was pointing out to me on Twitter the other day that we had mm. talked about doing exactly that kind of thing in the past. We did do it a little bit with Barry Milesberg, and that he mm. felt that it was a great thing for us to do and we should do more of. And he's completely correct. Whether we'll get the time to do it in London, I don't know. Because these te- these events tend to run
1: away from you, is my experience. But they do. But Jonathan has a very good point that there's a degree to which oral history, which once there was an oral history project at um, I think Michigan State University for years. I don't know it may be moribund by now. Uh, and there are lots of tapes and interviews and videotapes and kinescopes even of people like John W. Campbell around. James Gunn has some in Kansas. But but now nobody is doing that. Nobody's really doing it in the public forum. Uh, I, when when Daniel Keyes died a few weeks ago, uh, it occurred to me, in a, in a fleeting thought, even though I know he's been ill for a while, that, no, we, from the beginning of the podcast, didn't think to have him on. And one of the reasons to have somebody like Daniel Keyes on is that, yeah, everybody remembers Star Wars for Algernon, but nobody remembers... He was a junior member of the Hydra Club with Judith Merrill and Day yeah. My Night, New York, the early 1950s. He has memories that we need.
0: Oh, yeah. And there, I mean, there are people I wish it had been that had been recorded in the past. And we, we've I mean, we've let a few of them go past. I mean, I have to take my hats off to Starship Sofa when they did their Frederick Paul Jack Vance.
1: Absolutely. That which was is a great exactly.
0: podcast. It's a great podcast. Yeah. And, you know, we will be talking to Robert Silverberg in London, which will be great. And mm. I'm hoping to incite him to maybe be willing to do another at some time afterwards because it'll be more of a collective discussion in uh, London. Yes. Uh, and ju- just as a reminder to everybody who's listening to the podcast, please come to Crude Street 200, which will be recorded live at LUNCON on the Saturday afternoon, I think about three o'clock or so, uh, w- was, with our friends Stan Robinson, Joe Wals- Wilton and Bob Silverberg. We, we want you to be there. Please, please, please come. You can look at us. It's your one chance to go, oh, my God, I wish they'd shut up. Yeah. Or you can actually make us shut up, in fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, yes, you're right. So, the, 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 the oral history thing is a, a, something we definitely want to do more of. But what I was also trying to get to was ReaderCon 25. I mean, yes, there's a set of awards we'll talk about in a moment. But big news from the perspective of the podcast is for ReaderCon 26, they announced the Guests of Honor. And Nicola Griffith, who was a guest on this podcast, is going to be one of the guests of honor, which is great. So I think we should say congratulations to, to Nicola. Yay for her. I'm looking forward to the convention. I think we should all go just for that reason.
1: I hope so. And Nicola, of course, means we get to talk to Kelly as well, who is equally delightful Wonderful and, woman. and equally talented writer. Absolutely.
0: Um, and, and, and I understand that you know, it's a nice part of Framingham or
1: Boston or Burlington or somewhere. Burlington, Massachusetts, which is – in the middle of nowhere north of Boston.
0: Sounds sounds de- desirable. And, and I guess we should also point out that the other guest of honor at the convention will be one Gary K. Wolfe.
1: Congratulations. Yeah, well, think, uh, thank you very much. And I I have it on good authority from the people who organize and manage and run the program committee that they they don't actually think I'm the guy who wrote Roger Rabbit. Oh, they right. think I'm me. Hang on, didn't you? Okay, okay. Fess up, yes. I wrote that. I also wrote The Shadow of the Torture, and I wrote Look Homeward, Angel, and I wrote The Right Stuff. Anybody whose name is Wolf, I probably wrote it. Could you write Who Framed Severian?
0: Oh. That's a thought. You've got to branch out. I mean, cross over. It's it's time. A little bit more lupine magic, as they would say in a certain cult area. But no, Congratulations.
1: Thank you very much, and we should mention that Nicola and I conspired um, to have the memorial guest of honor. And Reader, one of the nice things ReaderCon does, two, two of the nice things ReaderCon does, they always have a memorial guest of honor. Who this year was Mary Shelley. Next year it will be Joanna Russ, and that is pretty much the work of Nicola Griffith and myself. Mm-hmm. And our argument is that um, the guest of honor, the, the memorial guest of honor's work, should be in some way. Uh, or could be, it doesn't have to be, in some way related to the work of both of the other guests of honor. And our argument was that Joanna Russ is one of a handful of writers that we can think of. Others are almost, with with the exception of Ursula Le Guin, almost all male writers, who has had equal influence on the criticism of the field and on the fiction of the field. Sure. Any number of people who picked up... uh, joanna russ's earlier novels from picnic on paradise to the female man uh, realize what a huge impact she had on um, not only what we now call feminist science fiction but literary science fiction satirical science fiction science fiction Mm. with an acerbic voice but she also wrote those terrific essays and reviews both in academic journals and in the magazine the fantasy and science fiction so here we have a memorial guest of honor that both nicola and i can claim in some sense to have descended from. Indeed, well that makes perfect sense and she's a terrific memorial guest to honor, probably
0: one of the youngest they've had. Um it's
1: one uh, one once this is this sounds awful Jonathan but once you're dead you're not young anymore. Most recent then, most contemporary. Okay. It, it 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 is contemporary. The, 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 there are contemporary writers who uh, another name who will be a guest, a memorial guest of honor, very soon at ReaderCon is Diana Wynne Jones, mm-hmm. uh, who both died within what, two years or a year of one another. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: And and, and their their impact is undeniable. Yeah, absolutely uh, so undeniable. It, so so so, the, so the, they both deserve the honor entirely. Um, the 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 second thing that goes on at ReaderCon, which I think is fascinating, is um, what they called the Cordwainer-Smith Award for underrecognized writers or yeah. writers who have had um, significant careers that by and large have, have, have disappeared from most readers' experiences. A couple of years ago, um, this writer was in attendance. It was Catherine McLean. Yeah. This year, it was Mildred Klingerman, um, who, again, was a, was, was a very prolific and very effective writer, mostly in the 50s and the early 60s, that seems to have dropped from view. Uh, a few years ago, it was a writer named Daniel Galouye. I think I'm pronouncing the name correctly, who had written a really wonderful novel called Dark Universe, yeah. and again, had, had, had almost dropped from you. And this is this is a uh, recognition ceremony which historically has been run by Mary, Barry Malzberg, who actually knew all these people and knew all the details about their careers. Um, this year, uh, I think the Mildred Klingerman recognition was... Presented by John Clute, uh, who, since he runs an encyclopedia, knows everything. <laughs> uh, well, it sounds
0: very exciting. I'm going to try to be there for the first time.
1: I hope so. I, hope, I think everybody should come to next year's uh, ReaderCon. We are going to have... I'm not sure what's going to happen in the programming, but I know that Kit Reed and Peter Straw are planning on having a panel about candy. Awesome. The, not the novel. Um, <laughs> and why I don't know where that came from I don't know what it means but we'll see
0: we could do a 5th anniversary
1: po- podcast from there oh that would be great we should start looking at uh, we've got 200 coming up at Worldcon we could do a 5th anniversary at uh, at ReaderCon and we have had podcasts from ReaderCon in the past
0: we have indeed just never with me there so who knows fingers crossed it's all in the lap of the gods at the moment that and budgetary restrictions but fingers, fingers crossed I would love to have, make it happen also, Gary, I know you were eager to talk about the Shirley Jackson Awards, which were presented over the weekend.
1: Over that the that, Shirley Jackson Awards? E- exactly. That's the that's the Shirley Jackson Awards are not officially uh, a part of ReaderCon, but ReaderCon has hosted them since the beginning. They're uh, run by a committee. When I, I, I if I start naming the committee members, uh, Brett Cox and John Langen, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave, uh, Paul Tremblay, I think I probably yeah. will leave somebody out. Um, but these are interesting awards in that they are meant to recognize that one of those corners of the um, mega-genre, multi-genre, super-genre, whatever you want, that sort of represents what Shirley Jackson did, which is which is not horror fiction in the sense of the World Horror Convention Awards. It's not fantasy in the sense of the World Fantasy Awards. Uh, it's not suspense fiction in the sense of the Edgar awards, but it's kind of at the intersection of all these. Mm. And it's always been an interesting group of nominees who usually don't get nominated for anything else. So if they get nominated for something else, um, are are kind of outliers. And so I'm always fascinated by these awards, even though I frequently not read the major, uh, works that win. Yeah. Um, This year's winner and, and, And the other thing which is nice about these awards is that, um, The winners tend to be present. Robert Jackson Bennett, who I'd never met before, um, won for American Elsewhere and and, and was there and was extraordinarily gracious about it. And I think he felt, and I think his novels, the ones I have read, Mm. are a good example of the sort of thing that falls in this space. Yep. Something might be marketable as horror, but really isn't. Yep. Um, Veronica Shano's Burning Girls, which I do know is a story that dealt with the shirtwaist factory fire in New York. Yes. Um, and Greer Gilman's Cry Murder in a Small Voice. These are the winners. Greer Gilman won for Novelette for what some people thought was a very uncharacteristic story for her because of her dense, elusive, uh, almost sometimes impressionistic prose in her earlier work. Yep. Uh, She was there. The winner for the Short Fiction Award, Sam J. Miller, was there. Goodness. Um, And... Christopher Barzak, who won for Before and Afterlives, which I think is a wonderful collection, tied with Nathan Ballingrid, uh for North American Lake Monsters. But again, Kelly Link and Gavin Grant were there uh, to accept on behalf of Nathan Balingrad. And Christopher Barzak's good friend, Murray Rickett was there to accept on behalf of his yep. collection. Yep. Um, Magic. And, and, I, and I'm afraid when I'm looking at the other winners that the um, anthology... um From Puppets? Rimscribe's Puppets? Yeah, by Joseph Pulver. I don't remember whether he was there or not. I may okay. have him come up with him. But uh, it's it's an interesting collection of um, nominees in general that you wouldn't see in any other ballad, I don't think.
0: No, I don't think you would, because they're not right in the middle of the genre enough to be picked up by, say, the World Fantasy Award, or at least in the middle of that, that part of it. And it is more... It, the interstices of where the World Fantasy Award gives up, you know, sort of stops and darker mainstream commences. So so in that uh, sense, it's quite interesting. Mm, um, my good,
1: and, uh, well, I'm sorry. No, you're fine. Yeah, right. I was going to say, my good friend and guest of honor this year, Kit Reed, was nominated for her omnibus, the story until now, which I plugged on the podcast before because I wrote the introduction to it. But it had the disadvantage of a lot of retrospective anthologies and awards balance like this and world fantasy in that It consisted largely of previously anthologized stories. Yep, which is always a problem when you're getting a a a sort of life retrospective collection of that sort of thing. As a matter of fact, I think there's one award, and it it's not the Shirley Jackson, maybe World Fantasy, uh, or maybe something else, or maybe I'm fantasizing this. That will not. (laughs) uh, It seems to me I was on an awards jury once, and I was told. That if you're looking at an anthology that consists only of previously anthologized stories, it's not considered an original story collection. In other that, words, if someone has had five or six story collections. Is that is that something familiar to you at all? I don't know. I don't know which one it is. I. I anyways, it, it could be somebody. One of the other things that you find out when you're a judge for these awards is that sometimes the administrators tell you what the rules are, and then you hang up the phone and you get the suspicion. That administrator just made up the rule.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I always get asked about the, the rules for the World Fantasy Awards, and mm-hmm. what I have to tell them, as far as I'm aware, is all of the rules for the World Fantasy Awards are printed on the ballot.
1: I think that's true. I think the World Fantasy Awards are fairly clear about uh, how they're determined, with, with one exception, and that is the Life Achievement Award. Yeah. Yes. No. No. And well, the uh, the World Fantasy Awards ballot, in terms of works, is basically divided between popular votes and judges' votes. Um, the popular vote, I don't think, has any impact on the like achievement awards at all. I don't think there is a popular ballot for that, uh, but there is a, a a list of historically important figures for the World Fantasy Awards. Uh, for the World
0: Fantasy Awards. No, no. The way the way it works for the World Fantasy Awards, including Lifetime Achievement, is a ballot is uh, sent out to all of the members, uh, mm-hmm. and the members of the convention for that year, and I think the preceding year, can nominate in all categories, including Lifetime Achievement. Okay. The top two nominees in each category go through to the uh, judges. Now, I believe the two nominations in Lifetime Achievement form a recommendation rather than the final results. Whereas in every other category, the top two nominees go on to the final ballot automatically.
1: I believe that's correct. In other words, an overwhelming popular vote uh, can always get somebody onto the ballot yep. uh, for, for the individual works. That yes. cannot happen with the Lifetime Achievement Award. That is true. Now, I and should the say – sorry. Yep. The, the Lifetime Achievement Award, my experience was, is essentially a negotiation – between the administrators of the yeah. uh, award and the judges for the particular year. That's true.
0: Now, with a congratulations to all of the Shirley Jackson Award winners. That's a reasonable segue across to the most recent major information to, or announcements come out of the field, which are in fact the 2014 World Fantasy Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, th- the convention committee. Has announced, or the convention has announced, that the world's fantasy lifetime achievement recipients—I think more than winners, if you know what I mean—this year are Ellen Datlow and Chelsea Quinn Yarbro. Yes. Both of whom are incredibly deserving winners. Uh, Ellen Datlow, particularly, might be the biggest no-brainer life achievement award winner in the history
1: of the World <laughs> Fantasy Awards. Uh,
0: well, I don't—I don't think anybody
1: except, hmm? except that there's. She has occasionally pointed out she's not that old. She's old enough to qualify. Yes, but Ga- okay. Has- yes, yes, true, Gary. And, I, and there used to be that
0: nominal thing that's not true. The nominal oh, yeah. cutoff of 65 or something to to be, win, be a life achievement award winner. But the reason I call her the biggest no brainer is because she has been nominated more times than anybody else. She has won more times than anybody else, and not by a small margin, if I recall correctly. Uh, I think she probably just about build a small house out of the number of statues that she's got. Certainly, she could, she could have a chess set.
1: Oh, between between World Fantasy Awards, Hugo Awards, Nebula Awards, uh, just everything you can imagine. And we should point out, all over the the, the 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 term super genre is not my term, but all over this field, science fiction, fantasy, horror, the work she did for Omni, yes, uh, the work she did for years with the Year's Best. Uh, fantasy and horror, which is continuing with the year's best for the individual anthologies, most recently, I guess, uh, Cutting Room, which is a film anthology of anthology of stories about film, Um, Queen Victoria's Book of Spells. In other words, she's covered fantasy, dark fantasy, steampunk, science fiction, horror, uh, and has almost impeccable taste, which she will be able to she will discuss if you know how to talk to her about it. I'm uh, hoping to talk to her about this again. I, I, sh- I shouldn't say this on the podcast, but at some point um, to do an onstage interview, because she's really, really a smart reader. Yeah, of course she is. And she, def- she but she defers her own smartness to to something like instinct. Uh, Ellen, if you're listening to this, we're going to get you. <laughs> So that's
0: terrible and uh, you yeah, know so congratulations to ellen and to chelsea quinn i mean i've met Quinn, it's and so- she's
1: really great yeah quinn yarborough is somebody else who has one of those reputations who which is legendary i mean the whole uh she is she's one of the few people to actually extend vampire fiction into something other than a monkey of bram stoker yeah and and she has a a, a, a considerable um catalog of, of other works that range through, again, the fantastic genres. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I hope she'll, she'll be able to attend it here. I, I only knew Quinn for a few years when she regularly attended ICFA and she has apparently not been able to do that for a couple of years, so I think yep. that's a very deserving choice.
0: Yes, very, very deserving. And uh, since we bore people to death, and this is becoming a bit of an awards podcast for a minute, the main ah. ballot was announced. Yes, it was. And I have to say, at least one category shocked me, Gary. Uh, Which the, there was novel. There was a novel. Sh- there was a, an omission. I looked at the at the, the novel ballot, and I will read through it in a second. And I went, uh-huh. this is fantastic. I think it's a great ballot. And then, about three or four minutes later, I went, there's a book missing. And I am Guy, genuinely Bill, surprised. Hmm? River of Stars. Absolutely. Guy Kaye's River of Stars. I am genuinely, genuinely surprised that it's not on the final ballot. I thought
1: it was... The biggest shoe-in possible? I would have thought so as well, and I'm a little surprised at um, its omission. I don't know how to explain its omission. One of the games you play in looking at the World Fantasy Ballot is to try to guess, okay, which, which items <laughs> come from your vote and which items come from the judges? And I, I can't parse that entirely. I would think that either Either the judges or the popular vote would have picked up the Guy K. novel. And by the way, speaking of Guy K., who is a friend of the podcast, has an Order of Canada award. Yes, that's what it's called, which is the highest cultural award. It's not just cultural, but one. Of the, it's like the order. It's like the OBE for Canada, I guess. And we, when that happens, and I, I was in email contact with Guy about this, as I'm sure you were. Mm. When that happens, it's good for all of us. Oh yes. It's. Really, when Brian Aldiss gets an OBE, uh, it it helps just sort of cement the respectability of science fiction. When Guy Kay does it in Canada, it cements, it it lifts all boats with the tide.
0: Yes, it does, I think. But anyway, the the nominees, the nominees were are, Dust uh-huh. Devil on a Quiet Street by Richard Bowes, mm-hmm. A Natural History of Dragons, A Memoir by Lady Trent by Marie Brennan, The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. A Stranger in a Londria by Sophia Samitar, The Golem and the Ginny by Helena Wecker, and The Land Across by Jean Wolfe. And apart from the nice sort of synergy that half of those people have been guests on our podcast and we've talked about several of the novels, it seems like a really mm-hmm. strong ballot. There's a couple of books I haven't read, Gary, I confess. I read more short fiction than novels, obviously, but it does look like a good ballot to me.
1: I think we can assume, and I'm not going to try to guess all of the um, nominees, but I think we can assume that uh, the ocean at the end of the lane, was probably a strong winner in the popular vote. That and may very, Now, the popular vote does not mean that the judges don't agree with it. Judges no. sometimes uh, say the popular vote is exactly what we would have said, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that was a winner in the popular vote. I am equally fairly confident that Richard Bose's really autobiographical uh, Dust Devil on a Quiet Street from a very small press was probably the judge's vote, because sure. it simply didn't get the currency that it needed to get uh, a popular vote.
0: It would be very interesting to see what you know how the judges go go here because I mean I've read three of the novels, and none of them would be poor winners. I mean sometimes every now and again you look on a ballot and you go, what's that doing there? And even in the rarer cases, how did that that win? But this ballot you look at, it, you go, no, that's a very strong slate of nominees.
1: It really is, and it's a it's a very varied slate of nominees. We have a couple of small press. Uh, books we have the, the the Golem and the Jenny, which as you know was um, something we had considered, and I think was a finalist for the Crawford Award. Published as a mainstream book from a mainstream publisher with very little connection to genre. You've got the the, the Gene Wolfe novel, which is a very peculiar Gene Wolfe novel. Um, and one of the things I think that happens with Gene Wolfe in these awards is that it's it's really good, but everybody's thinking, well, maybe next year's is going to be even better, and you don't want to give it to them all the time. Yep. Uh, but, uh, and A Strange Rental Laundry is one of the uh, first novels which has gained more and more and more buzz and interestingly enough I think Sophia has kept up uh, her visibility in the community with some some very powerful short stories including one which we'll is get to later, yeah. yeah, 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 short
0: fiction. Yes. yeah yes. so Sophia
1: Please. has two nominees this year,
0: well she's one nominee but she's got two nominations, yes. Is one nominee. For <laughs> best novella mm-hmm. The nominees for best novella are Wakala Springs by Andy Duncan And Ellen Clagis from Tor.com Both dear friends of the podcast
1: mm-hmm.
0: Black Helicopters by Caitlin R. Kiernan From Subterranean Press Another good friend of the podcast The Sun and I by KJ Parker from Subterranean Burning Girls by Veronica Shanos by, From Tor.com And Six Gun Snow White by Catherine M. Valenti From Subterranean And I've read them
1: all, Gary. Yes. Have you? I've read... Um, Yes, I have,
0: actually. I think... I mean, I don't want to play the could-win-should-win, but it's an interesting array of novellas. You've got... A couple that are, frankly, borderline genre in the fact that, I mean, Well, Color Springs doesn't seem to have any overt elements of genre to it, as has been often uh, mentioned around the place, but is a terrific, terrific story. The Sun and I by K.J. Parker does, but as is often with Parker, isn't aimed at the fantastic element particularly, is is it? I mean, that's not really what Parker tends to write about. No. Um, The Shanos, which from Tor, which was also up for the Shirley Jackson uh, is a very, very interesting piece and very, very well done. Mm-hmm. Um, the 6 guns Snow White a lot of fun. I think, I'm not 100% sure the ending works completely. And Black Helicopters is a tour de force from Caitlin R. Kiernan, uh, and, but is the kind of piece which is either going to resonate for you or leave you completely perplexed, is my feeling.
1: Well, I mean, it doesn't help but part of it is in French, I suppose. But uh, my, my sense of Black Helicopters is that I, th- I think Kiernan has been... Um, who, who is by training a scientist mm-hmm. has been working her way back into science fiction for some years now. And I think this is by far the most successful uh, re-entry into the science fiction field uh, that she's done. What strikes me about that, and uh, th- 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 there, there are a couple of things I want to get back to what color springs in a minute yeah, yeah. is that um, what color springs certainly and uh, burning girls, the Veronica Shano story uh, were Widely available on Tor.com. Mm-hmm. Black Helicopters was only available to a handful of readers. We talked a little bit about this with, oh, there it is. See, I have an e-copy of it. But it, for those of you who don't understand what we're doing here, Jonathan and I are looking at each other on FaceTime while we're talking on the podcast. And he just held up a copy of Black Helicopters. The actual physical book published by Subterranean Press, which I, his co-host, does not have a copy of. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Ha, ha, ha. But my, but the point I was going to make is that black helicopters and six-gun Snow White in particular were available only to a handful it's true. of readers and nevertheless made the ballot. Now, Kat Only has a huge following, which is deserved. Um, and Caitlin Kiernan, I would like to think, has a huge following, which is deserved. But the point is, I don't see how a lot of people could have read these stories to nominate them. That, remember, it's a judge jury award, Gary. Well, in terms of the popular vote. M- my guess is that
0: uh, for the, in this category, the Veronica Shanos and the um, Duncan and Kledges stories were the, were the popular vote, though I don't know that. Because uh, you're completely correct. I mean, it's unlikely that the the Black Helicopters was. Uh, mm. Not because it's unworthy uh, of its nomination, because it's vastly worthy. But because it's just you know, I think it was maybe three or six hundred copies. I forget which number it was. But, but hmm. a, a small number of copies of this. F- very fine story. And I really hope to see it get a... I think it's going to get a broader publication because it'll be featured in the next volume of the Best of Captain K- Kiernan. Oh, excellent. Um, so, yes. And I, frankly, I would have included it in my year's best if it were not for the length of the piece because I think it deserves a broader readership. I don't really want to play could win, should win on this one because hmm. so many of the people in the category are dear friends but there are no bad winners in that, that group. Um, and, you know, look, and look uh, yeah. forget it. A little part of you would love to see Ellen and Andy take it home because I know they would love it, and I know they worked hard on it for a long, 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 long time.
1: And mm? the, the other thing, which is, I, I have no idea what the statistics on this sort of thing are. I suppose our friend Mark Kelly could, or we could look it up on Mark Kelly's website, but Wakala we'll Springs, as... Um, as Ellen noted, right after the nominations came out, has scored what she called a hat trick. But it's actually more than that because Will Collins Prince has been on the Nebula, Hugo, World Fantasy, and Locust Ballots as a finalist. Yes, yes. For a novel, which, for, for a novella, which everyone, uh, including the authors, admit has no overt fantastic content. If yes. you squint, you can sort of make some fantastic content. Uh, and that's interesting, uh, 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 that's interesting by itself. Um, It was interesting that something got on a Hugo ballot or a world to get on all these ballots Mm -hmm. suggests that's a remarkable story, which resonated with readers in a way that made them say, I'm not going to worry about defining genre. Uh, There are readers, there are readers who um, have said on on, on Twitter and other um, online discussion forums that this may be one of the best stories I read this year, but I can't vote for it because I don't think it's science fiction. Um, I hope they'll and, overcome that position.
0: I think they should just look at it as well, compare it to what's on the ballot and make that decision.
1: Well, the, the thing is, if one, once you've got things on the ballot, you're reading story by story and comparing them, hopefully, to each other. Yep. Um, and as we've said before on this podcast, in, in, in reference to this story and a couple of others, including, for example, Karen Joy Fowler's novel uh, that was on the Nebula ballot, I don't think anybody seriously would want to include a definition of genre as a condition of being on a ballot. No, I I certainly
0: wouldn't. I mean, I I take the point where people argue with it because, Mm -hmm. for example, the World Fantasy Award. You've just said that Black Helicopters is the best science fiction story Caitlin Kiernan has written in quite a while. And Um, it's on the World Fantasy Ballot.
1: Yeah, it's on the World Fantasy Ballot, but not the Hugo Ballot.
0: You know... And, and that means, that at least for this group of people, it belongs within, you know, the, the remit of fantasy. I mean, one of the things that I've got to do as a panel item at, at Worldcon is talking about what is and what isn't fantasy, which is kind of interesting. Anyway, we better move on or we'll run out of time, Gary. Okay, right. Short Fiction. Short. You want to read it? or?
1: Short Fiction, The Ink Readers of Doi Sakat by Thomas Old Huvelt. I assume I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Yep. The Prayer of 90 Cats by Caitlin Kiernan, which I did not read. Effigy Nights by Yoon Ha Lee, which was in Clark's World and I think is also in her collection. Um, Sulky Stories are for Losers by Sophia Samatar and If You Were a Dinosaur, My Love by Rachel Swirsky. And I have read most of those, but I think I've read all but one of those. And I assume you've read all. I've read all. Which one haven't you read? I have not read the Caitlin Kiernan story.
0: Okay. That was the one where she and I had had a discussion about it because I included The Road of Needles. In my best of the year,
1: uh-huh.
0: which is um, which I think just won the Locust Award
1: mm-hmm.
0: for best short story, and Caitlin felt that it was, in her opinion, not as strong a story as this one, which was also up for the award. So it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to see how it falls out. Uh, I like Thomas Alder huvelts story very much. Uh, I love Sophia's story um i liked rachel's story i've liked other rachel stories a lot more but i know people who adore this story uh-huh. i can't tell you who's the popular vote or in fact who's going to win but again it's a strong strong ballot um four out of five of the nominees are, are, are women which is interesting in, you mm-hmm. know, in this day so a, a very very solid interesting ballot there are other stories that could have made made it but none that i have sat there and go oh my god why aren't they there
1: there's a lot of cultural variety in the, in the balance as well, which I think is interesting because you have the, I, I don't know anything about Thomas Olde Huvelt except that that is a story set in Thailand, as I recall.
0: It's a story set in Thailand and to, Thomas is
1: Dutch, uh, a ah. Dutch
0: ho- writer who's mostly known for writing horror novels, I think.
1: Mm-hmm. It was the first story I've read by him and I was very impressed by it. I was very impressed by Yoon and effigy nights, uh, who seems to be a writer who varies, who veers between really hard, even military science fiction, and and sort of uh, uh, sort of lyrical fantasy. Yep. So she's fascinating. We talked to her um, just to plug the magazine. At some point in the near future, there will be a locus interview with you and Holly, which mm-hmm. which uh, I did to, at, at 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 ReaderCon along with Liza, uh, Groen Trombi, and Sophia Semitar. As I say, what's interesting to me about Sophia is that she came apparently out of nowhere from most people's perspective with the novel Stranger and Alondria, but it wasn't a one-off. She's been writing good short fiction ever since. Yes. And, and she's writing a,
0: a sequel to Stranger and Alondria at the moment.
1: Which you, you can tell was coming at the end of the first novel. Yeah. Uh, it's not a surprise.
0: And as she discussed when she was a guest on the podcast.
1: Exactly. And now that brings us down to Anthology. Congratulations for being on the ballot for Fearsome Journeys. Thank you very much. I was genuinely surprised. Uh, I liked the yes. book very much, but I
0: was quite surprised. I hadn't been thinking. In fact, I've got to be honest. This year, I, I, I had so much going on, I completely forgot about the World Fantasy Awards for the first time in a decade. I didn't nominate. Sorry. I just, so when the ballot came out, I was like, oh, oh, ballot. And it was like, in fact, it wasn't even ballot came out. I got a congratulations on Twitter. I'm like, well, what for? Uh-huh. and it was like I followed this link across to Facebook where someone had posted a copy of the ballot and was like oh wow now Kate Bernheimer is someone you might be familiar with her mm-hmm. Exo Orpheus 50 New Myths is her latest anthology but she did another one uh, retelling fairy tales a couple of years ago which was very well received My Mother My Father or something or My Mother Ate My Father I think it was something like that
1: yeah and she's got another one coming out soon I believe
0: yes yes so she, and she's doing doing these big anthologies with with Penguin. And they're all really, really interesting books. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think her background is as
1: a fairy tale scholar. She is an academic, and she... Uh, That's I, I, right. I, not... my, my mother, oh, yeah. she yeah.
0: killed me. My father, he ate me. 40 new fairy That's,
1: tales. I was trying to remember the title of it, yeah. And that was a terrific collection. Um, yeah. There's a sense in which Kate Bernheimer is as a literary, uh, she's one of these literary academics. Jack Zipes is the only one I can think of who's had a similar career to her in editing commercial kinds of um, genre anthologies. But there's a sense in which she's sort of, through that, keeping alive, I think, the spirit of Angela Carter. And if we if we talk about Angela Carter long enough, it just now occurred to me, this very second, we could get somebody to put together a set of Angela Carter awards for really bizarre Variations on, on on fairy tale themes, but yeah. that's that's the sense I get from the Kate Bernheimer anthologies oh. that I've watched.
0: And her next book is an anthology, "How a Mother Weaned Her Ta- Girl from Fairy Tales and Other Stories." I have it's not, in, fact,
1: in fact, it's a short story collection of her own work. Very interesting. A, we should look it up. Excellent. She should be interesting. I've never met her, and yeah. it sounds fascinating to me. Uh, the probably the, the Lennon
0: and McCartney of of, of anthologies. Uh, Datlow and Windling uh, have Queen's Victoria's Book of Spells on the ballot
1: mm-hmm.
0: Steve Jones Souvenir Book from World Fantasy Convention is on the ballot as an anthology uh, Dangerous Women by George Martin and Gardner d'Azois and End of the Road by Jonathan uh, Jonathan Oliver my editor at Solaris and a Good Friend is on the ballot very good anthology I don't know
1: the Jonathan Oliver anthology I'm afraid
0: it's a good book, very good book I picked out the Benjamin Stridencoyle story that I put in my best of the year uh-huh. from that, and the several very very good stories and John's a, a terrific editor. He's got a, another new anthology due out later this year called, I think, Dangerous Games or something. And it looks really interesting. It's always good and does great work. And it's, I don't just say that because I'm sucking up to him because he's my editor at Solaris. He's actually the guy <laughs> who, in fact, yeah. he effectively has two nominations because Fearsome Journeys he's my editor for.
1: Well, don't give him credit. Take credit when you can get it. <laughs> 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 I, I think we can agree that the anthology category is a pretty strong category this yeah,
0: year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that Dangerous Women's was a popular vote, but and probably Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, I would think. I would imagine. I would imagine. I, I can't I would, begin to guess how it will go. I'm, I was surprised to see the World Fantasy Souvenir book on there, but there you go.
1: Who knows? That brings us down to collection. And a great collection of books. Nathan Bellingwood's North American Lake Monsters, an interesting collection from Small Beer. Yep, perfect one. The beautiful thing that awaits us all in other stories by Laird Barron. Laird is one of those writers who is perfect, seems to be perfectly happy to be classified as a horror writer, but he's far more interesting than that. He's interesting. He's a he's a literary writer in the sense that uh, Thomas Ligotti is, or, yeah, sure. or, or Peter Straub's short fiction, and is now editing the year's best, best weird story. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, uh, The Ape's Wife and Other Stories, Caitlin Kiernan from Subterranean, which I'm always glad to see. Flowers of the Sea by Reggie Oliver, who I've read a couple of stories by, I don't know the book. And How the World Became Quiet by Rachel Swirsky, who was on the podcast to discuss that with us uh, at at some point. I mean, I've not read Flowers of the Sea by Reggie
0: Oliver. I've read all (laughs) of the others. Very, very strong sets of collections. None of them are really what I would call middle of the genre fantasy, uh, but they're all very interesting and worthwhile books.
1: The sense I get is that uh, so, some of the, I know we, some of the stories in the Rachel Strosky collection of science fiction, and there's always that odd sense in a world fantasy ballad, which was to some extent conceived uh, as, a, as, a, as a kind of complement to the Hugo Awards, that there shouldn't be too much science fiction here. So there's some science fiction in the Rachel Swirsky collection. There's yeah. a bit of science fiction in the Caitlin Kiernan collection. I don't know about Reggie Oliver. Uh, Laird Barron is, as I say, he's in that odd space, which is actually more of a Shirley Jackson space than anything else. And so, so I, don't, I don't know where this comes from. I mean, I, I don't know where what comes from, but I would guess that um, possibly the popular vote included um, the Swirsky and the Balingrad, but that's just yeah. guesswork. I
0: have no idea. Uh, I have my fingers crossed for all of them, and I'd be delighted to see several of them win, so, yeah. Uh, A uh, category I don't have much to say about, but I acknowledge do have one particular thing to say, but be, Best Artist, uh, mm-hmm. Galen Dara, Zelda uh, Devon, Julie Dillon, John Picaccio, and Charles, Charles Vesto, the nominees. And I think it's one mm-hmm. of the few artist ballads I've seen in my lifetime that is most dominated by women.
1: That's true. I I had not noticed that. I mean, there have been... uh, I
0: mean, I'm assuming that Zelda is a woman.
1: but I would assume uh, Galen and Zelda and Julie are all women. Yes, definitely. Um, uh, But but uh, Julie Dillon's work, I vaguely know. I don't pay much attention... The reason i don't pay a lot of attention to artists as we've talked about briefly before it's because i usually don't see finished copies of books at all yeah and i don't see finished copies of magazines so so i don't know i know john Picasso and i know charles vess and they're they're very very talented artists i think i know julie Dillon's work um there are people who um, i think maybe if i'm not mistaken maybe leo and diane Dillon actually received some kind of a so. Did they receive a life achievement award from the world fantasy award at some I think point? Might have. Yes. I think might have. Um, so there are people like that who used to be ubiquitous in the field, uh, specifically the fantasy, not the science fiction. Thomas Canty was another one. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad to see the, the, the artist ballot the way it is, but I don't know much about it. And yeah. Can't say much about it. Ah, well, then okay. we got get the special award professional. Yep. Um, I've got a particular thing to is, say oh, here,
0: but yeah, please read out the well, moment. Gary.
1: read that the nominees Uh, the professional understands uh, as I understand professional means that you make money and non-professional means that you don't that seems to be the simplest way of looking at it
0: enough money to live off yeah
1: well professional means you're supposed to make money the nominees are john joseph adams for magazine and anthology editing ginger buchanan for editing at ace books irene gallo for art direction at tour.com although she actually does a lot more than that these days William K. Schaefer for Subterranean Press and recently of this podcast. Jeff Vandermeer and Jeremy Zervos for Wonderbook, The Illustrated Guide to Creating Imaginative Fiction, which won the Locus Award already. And Jared Walters for Centipede Press, which is, I think, a very interesting nominee. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I love this batch of nominees. I mean, you have a magazine editor, you have a novel editor, you have an art editor, you've got a publisher, you've got a terrific book. For um, you know, talking about the um, the the creative process, and mm-hmm. then you have a, have a a fine press small p- publisher. I think almost any of them would make terrific winners. I have my. The, I'm going to go out to bat for one of them, though. I mean, first of all, I work with Irene Gallo a little bit at Tor.com. I think she's just extraordinary and would be a very worthy winner. Jeff and uh, Jeremy's book is brilliant. Gerard's a a lovely guy. Ginger Buchanan's retiring and has made an extraordinary contribution. But Hmm. I think this should go to William Schaefer. I I was going to say... He's never won a major uh, award at all. Really? Never won a major award. Look at this ballot that his name appears on. 40% of the short Mm -hmm. stories, 40% of the novellas, 40% of the collections were all edited by Bill and published by Bill.
1: And when we had Bill on the podcast, there was a tweet the following week, and I'm sure that Joe Monty won't mind my quoting this, that it was great to listen to him, that he is a legendary figure in the field. He He is. He has really made... The careers of a number of writers uh or or sustain the careers of others absolutely From Parker to Lucia Shepard to Caitlin Kiernan to, to Rachel Swirsky you could the list goes on and on and on it's not simply keeping people in print uh who are legendary figures in the field but 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 recognizing younger writers like Rachel Swirsky absolutely absolutely. Together collections. so so I I agree with that I think part of the problem is it's not a problem. It's part of his choice is that he's not maintained a particularly high profile in the community.
0: Well, this is a juried award, and I know the decision will already have been made. You know, mm-hmm. because That's how it goes with this sort of thing. Uh, but I genuinely hope that Bill takes home the statuette in uh, Washington this year because I c- whilst, whilst there are other very worthy nominees, and they would all, I wouldn't be horrified to see anybody win. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think he is sadly overlooked and really deserves the, the acknowledgement. So... That's that's my my, my adver- editorial, and I I've worked with him, and I know him, and he's a friend. So.
1: Well, we both done work for him, also. So. Yes, yes, we have. Yeah. But then, then again, it's hard to name somebody in the field who hasn't. It, uh, it's true. And then we come to special
0: award, non-professional, mm-hmm. S- Scott H. Andrews for *Beneath Ceaseless Skies*, a very fine uh, fantasy pro- semi scene. Mark oh. Appling for *Fantasy Faction*. Kate Baker, Neil Clark, and Sean Wallace for *Clark's World* which would probably be coming towards the end of its run as being classified as non-professional because I know Neil's been pushing to get it up to pro status. Yeah. Leslie Howell for administering Clarion West and M- M- Monica van der Salm for a fantastical librarian. And my apologies right out of the box for the terrible pronunciation on Monica van der Salm's name.
1: I, and my apologies because I don't know what the fantastic librarian is. Me either. So we
0: should be sacked and not do this podcast anymore. It's been fun. No? Okay, bye.
1: Uh, Leslie is somebody <laughs> who done the own beep, for 30 beep. years, Man, Clarion West, and, and her management of Clarion West has fed over into the Locus Awards weekend and made it very successful. And mm-hmm. she is seems to me to be always under a lot of stress. And I think the fact that she's being recognized with this nomination is something which she's probably earned for leadership She's one of these people who is not visible in the field except to young aspiring writers who go to Clarion West and to visiting writers who teach Clarion West. So that's, that's an insightful and thoughtful nomination. Uh, Clark's world. uh, Again, it's, I'm surprised it's non-professional. Yeah. I I don't understand the rules entirely. Um, And I'm afraid I don't know anything about fantasy faction. I should find out about it. I will. I'm, lagellating myself now for not knowing that. Okay. And the Ceaseless Skies, which produces some first-rate fiction. There's no question about yep. that. That, that. But I've had this problem, and I will I will be glad to mention this to Scott Andrews, or, or I to I meet mean, him, is Ceaseless Skies are not Ceaseless. Ceaseless <laughs> is a measure of time, not space. <laughs> <sighs>
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whatever,
1: Gary. (laughs) Whatever. It's the English teacher in me saying, okay, okay, skies don't cease. Skies (laughs) are always there. Meals cease. Train schedules cease. (laughs) Cease. Skies
0: don't. Fair enough. We take your point. And I've just looked it up, and I apologize for not knowing this, but... Uh, Monica van der Sam is a Dutch librarian or informational specialist who works at a university library in the, the Netherlands, and she is a, a, a prolific uh, reviewer of um, fantasy fiction on her uh, website, a fantasticallibrarian.com, and that would be why she's been nominated, Gary.
1: One of the things that I do admire about the World Fantasy Awards is that there is always one non Anglo-American-Australian judge. There's always somebody from Europe or Japan or someplace else, and that has almost always added a kind of international perspective to the World Fantasy Awards, which really ought to be there. I mean, these are called, after all, World Fantasy Awards. Uh, They really need to be – they need to recognize perspectives of different cultures. I don't know – I don't recall offhand who the judges were this year. I think John Klima was one. Um, but the but the idea of having some international judge on every year's jury strikes me as being Sound. completely in spirit with the name World Fantasy yeah, Awards. very
0: much. Yeah.
1: And with that, Gary, we've reached
0: the end of the World Fantasy Ballot. We've reached the end of our time together this week and the end of episode 197 of the Coot we're, Street Podcast
1: now in its fifth year of recording. We are three episodes away from the legendary 200th podcast which um, no one knows what will happen. It's, it's going to be like a Michael Bay film. It's going to be like Transformers <laughs> 5. It's going to go on for hours.
0: There'll be no giveaways. There'll be no fireworks. It's going to be extraordinary. It will be. Um, I have to avoid joking, though. I once joked to somebody that there should be uh, bubble machines and marshmallows, and someone did it at an award ceremony. And it was ugly, Gary. It sounded funny, but bubble machines don't go well at <laughs> at, at award ceremonies. I don't think
1: bubble machines would w- work particularly well for us. I, d- I don't think unicyclists would work, or, or or trapeze artists, or magicians, and that sort of thing. But but we could go on for hours and hours.
0: It'll seem that way, even if you're even if we don't. Yeah,
1: probably. Uh, it, it'll be very interesting because if we if this works, uh, if we do a live Kud Street podcast or WorldCon, and we don't completely. Face it <laughs> which we
0: could, which we could.
1: We could uh, look out at that crowd and go, "Uh, uh, uh." Well, we'll figure out something. But uh, we 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 could do another. We could, certainly, if if you're able to get in for Readercon next year, we could certainly do that. But yeah, uh, again, to get back to our listeners, uh, who probably all understand this, Jonathan and I get to see each other once a year. If that, you betcha.
0: That's it. So, so. that's why we're going to we see each other in France.
1: And we'll see each other in France. We're going to be visiting our friend, Ellen Clagis. We're going to be visiting other friends in Paris. Oh. We're going to be doing lots of things uh, in London, I hope. And it'll be uh, a, an enjoyable August, I after which we both yeah. have to come back and bury ourselves in work.
0: Oh, don't even say that. However, to conclude the, the podcast, Gary, it occurs to me that I know the exact way to conclude it. Oh. Having reminded everybody that on Saturday, the 16th of August, at the London Excel Center, at 3 p.m., Coot Street 200 will occur. Having reminded everybody that, and that they should be there, please. Uh, we're, we're getting a big room. Don't embarrass us and make us have... I mean, Bob Silverberg will look at us like we are idiots if four people show up, right?
1: It, 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 he will not just look at us. He will say, you got me into this. Yeah, or he why? will. Oh, he will. Well, please. So is... save us. Save us,
0: please. Yes. Save us from Bob Silverberg's wrath, please. But Gary, I think this week... We should close the podcast in song, in unison, a song that should go out to Ellen Klages, who just celebrated her 60th birthday. Happy birthday Birthday. to you. Happy birthday birthday. to you. Happy birthday, dear (laughs) Ellen. Happy birthday
1: to you. Okay. You suck. You barely joined in at all. I, I, I was trying not to at all. Well, you harmonize. No, you yeah, thanks. No, no. Okay. I don't how know how doing. to harmonize. I don't know how to sing. I'm glad Ellen is 60 because that means. That she's not dead. Yes. It means she's, I, I was going to say it means she's only, she's less than two decades younger than I am, but then she was before. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that cheery
0: note, <laughs> in this strange pause before Worldcon, I'll see you next week.
1: Uh, I will see you next week, and we will have a good time then. Till then, bye. Bye.